Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 115. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today on the podcast, a longtime friend, someone who's actually been very instrumental in a lot of the episodes we've done in the past, Matt Kirtley, also known as Aesopian. Matt, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Just trying to stay warm in the winter. Oh, man. Is is it chilly over there? I mean, even here in Vancouver, it's a, a little bit brisk. No, it's it's warm for winter right now, but we, we got like over two feet of snow the other day, so I had to spend a few hours shoveling my car out. So maybe we can pivot this into an introduction. Why don't you just give everyone a quick primer on who you are? So most people know me from the internet just because I've been in the online jujitsu scene for a long time. The way most people probably know me is as one of the moderators on Reddit, even though I haven't been very active there in a while. I uh, have kept the website asopian.com for, I want to say, 15 or more years now. It was a, one of the first jiu-jitsu blogs, and it's, I think, potentially the longest-running one. There might be, like, Slidyfoot, who I think could be longer than me. And uh, I just am kind of on the Internet a lot. People know me that way. I'm on the Inverted Gears. I write for them or wrote for them, and I'm also on a lot of their YouTube videos. So if it's online and jiu-jitsu-related, I'm probably involved. So the big takeaway I got from that is that it's actually Aesopian and not Aesopian. No, it's probably Aesopian. I just say it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, didn't you explain to me one time that it's derived from Aesop? And so wouldn't it therefore be Aesopian? Yeah, it probably should be. I, I just come, it just comes out of my mouth that way. Well, this has been a learning experience for you then. So, of course, you, other people may know you as well, like you said, from, well, you know, where I know you from is because you were temporarily one of the most fraudulent black belts on Belt Checker, but I believe <laughs> you've got that resolved now. What, what was the yeah. problem there? You hadn't provided sufficient evidence, so everyone just downvoted your profile? Yeah, I mean, the system worked like it was supposed to, but it was kind of fun <laughs> to be an illegitimate black belt. It caught you. <laughs> I think I didn't know the dates of all my other belt promotions. Like, I don't remember when I got my blue and purple belt, so I didn't put those. And then people were dismissing me, downvoting me, unverifying me until I figured those out. And uh, I mean, that's their rules. So we had some fun with it because I liked the idea that I was this uh, fraud for a little while. But in the end, I'm I'm now verified. But did they charge you a $500 black belt fee and did they make you pay for their referee course in order to get verified? They did not. So they, I was willing to put up with the abuse. <laughs> well, on the topic of abusive organizations, something that I've wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about for quite a while 
is the concept of the bite model and the influence continuum. Now, longtime listeners of the show will remember that back on episodes 62 and 63, we had Rob Bernacki on and we did a, a real deep dive into cults and how cults operate and the tactics they use. And we did this because, you know, although a lot of people, they think that a cult is, you know, a bunch of people gathering at midnight with hoods on, <laughs> it's actually just a more general term for a certain type of organization that employs abusive and manipulative tactics. And that is certainly more common in jiu-jitsu than we would like it to be. So today I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the psychology of that. Rob Bernacki, when he was on, he talked briefly about the bite model, but we didn't go into it much. And it's just such an important thing to understand that I think we can spin off a, a whole episode here just talking about that. And for those who recently listened to your episode with Stefan Kesting on the Strenuous Life podcast, I was really inspired by the conversation you had there to kind of dig a little bit deeper just into you know, open thoughts and how we can improve the quality of the organizations that we represent here in jiu-jitsu. Because one thing that I, I think we would all agree is there's there's problems with jiu-jitsu in terms of the way that it operates. It is still very kind of like backwatery and culty in comparison to a lot of the other more, you know, legitimate sports like wrestling and judo. And I think that if we want jiu-jitsu to get to the next level, we've got to shine a light on this stuff and we've really got to clean it up. So Matt, with with that said, why don't you maybe just quickly tell me a little bit about your research on this? Because you and I first started talking about cults in the martial arts probably a few years ago now, and that very much helped with some of the initial episodes we did that touched on the stuff. How did you kind of discover these topics and, and get so invested in the research behind it? The thing that got me going with regards to jujitsu and cults, which we can define that term a little better in a minute, but it was, I wrote an article about warning signs of a like a sexually exploitive or abusive situation in jiu-jitsu schools because I was hearing stories of that or people were messaging me on my website for help on that and uh, that was so I didn't know what to tell them so I had to reach out to people uh, like Valerie Worthington and some other black belts and they were recommending I look into not just cults but the dynamics of abusive relationships which a cult is a big group version of that and then you, as it narrows down, a lot of those same dynamics are reflected in one-on-one -on -one relationships or small situations that you wouldn't think of as a cult because it's not like a religious setting or it isn't a obvious structured setting. It's more informal. So that's what got me down the path of trying to look into these models for understanding group dynamics, especially toxic group dynamics or destructive ones. And through there, I got into the bite model. So the bite model comes from a cult expert named Steve Hassan, who's been working in the field for over 40 years, and he's written a few books on the topic. And so I read those and I followed his work. And I picked out his model because there's other models for cults, but they tend to be more revolving around what you think of when you hear that word, like Jonestown or Heaven's Gate, where there's a a very strange group that's very far outside the norm that has a more extreme belief system. And those ways of understanding those groups will revolve around things that I don't think a lot of people could relate to because there's lots of strange rituals and behaviors. But then you find that there are also groups that you wouldn't think would be a cult. Like, I mean, one of the wildest ones I heard of was 
an equestrian group. So it was a person who teaches people to ride horses and all their students. But they had developed a cultic relationship because that person used that position to really get undue influence over these people. And you're going to think, how could that happen? And that's what we're going to try to talk about is it, it doesn't happen all at once. And it's not a magical process, but it's just the ways in which someone can manipulate social situations, the ways they can manipulate individuals, the ways they can use influence over people to create a, a power dynamic where they can control people much more than you'd expect. And so it started on that end of trying to understand this really horrible situation someone wrote into me about with what was happening at their school and trying to get them help. And then a lot after I wrote the article, a lot of people coming to me and talking about these problems they have at their gyms. At that time, it was largely mostly issues where women were having instructors or higher belts that were using their position to try to sleep with students. And then if there was a student who was calling them out on it or who wasn't going with it, the way that the group could become toxic towards that person who was trying to defy the instructor or trying to get some accountability for the instructor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely am on the same page as you here. I mean, I think that anyone who has trained jujitsu for long enough to get a black belt will sadly have seen this stuff firsthand at some point. I know I have, you know, I've seen not just situations where sexual assault was involved, but also physical assault, right? It's not just women who get impacted by cult tactics in a gym. I've straight up seen and heard of violence occurring in our community. And a lot of that comes down to abuse of power. Now, when people talk about cults, you mentioned this earlier, the mind kind of goes to these extraordinary outlandish examples of cults, right? Like Heaven's Gate. And people tend to think that, oh, well, that must be what a cult is. And I think the challenge is because in our mind, we have this very extreme understanding of what a cult is, that it makes it hard for us to accept that we might be in a cult because, you know, we're not involved in Jonestown, right? You know, it's just a jujitsu yeah. gym. It can't be, it can't be a cult, right? So the challenge is that word cult has developed a lot of very loaded meaning and it's become such an extreme term that it can be almost detrimental sometimes because people, they think of it as this outlandish, crazy thing. And they think of the problems that they're seeing at their gym as more garden variety, but really I think we should be more liberal with the use of the word cult, right? I mean, the definition that I use and that we talked about on our episodes about cults is that a cult is an organization that uses unscrupulous tactics to exploit members for the benefit of the organization and the founder. So if you're part of a group and they're doing awful things to you for the benefit of the people behind the cult... It's a cult, right? It, it doesn't have to be some crazy religious sect, right? It could be a jujitsu gym. It could be a business that you work at, right? It could be your family. It could be anything. It's a series of tactics that an organization can use that make them unethical and manipulative. That, to me, is how you would define a cult. Yes, and that's certainly the use that is most common in modern times. There's a distinction that a lot of the people who work in the field of cults make, which is that a cult doesn't have to be destructive because if we go to the oldest definition, it's simply a group of people who share a devotion to a person, belief or an ideal, which in that definition, you can call almost anything a cult and it doesn't mean very much. 
So they will make the distinction of a destructive cult. But certainly in the modern usage, you're not going to see people throwing out the word cult unless they mean it in a critical or derogatory sense. But it does, because it gets thrown out like that, it's also a word that really turns people off or makes the, the conversation harder to have because no one's ever been told you're in a cult and responded well to that. <laughs> well, maybe Mac users. Yes, maybe. And so if you want, there's other words you could use there in the religious world. They call it like a new religious movement, which is a different topic. But when you're talking about it in terms of like an unhealthy group, right, there's a simple thing. You could say this is simply an unhealthy group. Do you want to call it a cult? Sure. Why not? I guess. Or you could say it's a high demand group. It's a high control group. But sometimes the groups don't even seem high demand or high control at their outset until you look into the ways in which people are being manipulated. And so there's often a outside layer to it, which looks normal or in which people are benefiting or having some experience that they find meaningful. But then you look into it more and then you see in it usually higher up the totem pole in the organization or behind closed doors, there's something deceptive going on where mm -hmm. it might have started as something that has good intentions. Like, uh, you know, yoga is going through uh, a lot of controversies where a lot of yoga gurus and instructors are getting outed as abusing their position because it it could have started as just a legitimate good thing. They wanted to share their love of something with other people. But then once there's other people, you start getting loyalty, hierarchy, in-group, out-group, kind of the hero worship and the cult of personality. And then I just think a lot of these people, these gurus or these jujitsu instructors don't have the experience or the education for the leadership role. And so it becomes more an issue of authoritarianism rather than any like weird cultic, you know, they're not making people, you know, meditate eight hours a day and then worship aliens. It's more just the way in which a person in power starts using that over others. Does that make sense? 100%. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Stephen Hassan's bite model is because I think it does a good job of adding some objectivity and some nuance to the discussion of cults. Because when you say to someone, hey, I think you're in a cult, like that's a very all or nothing statement, right? And like I said earlier, the mind kind of goes to heaven's gate and it's really easy to say, oh no, I'm not in something like that, right? It's very easy to be dismissive of it. Whereas the bite model takes that emotion out of the conversation. It's objective in how it evaluates the nature of the organization that you're looking at. And it also acknowledges that there is a spectrum, right? Not every cult is going to ask you to drink like cyanide Kool-Aid, right? Some cults are a lot lesser in terms of what they expect out of you, but they can still be exploitative and damaging. Um, I know that you've done research, for example, on multi-level marketing, which can very easily be tied into the discussion of, of cults. And you could argue that jujitsu gyms, a lot of them are kind of like low-grade cults, and they would appear on the negative side of the bite model, but they're not, of course, they're not as bad as these suicide-packed cults, but they're still bad. And the challenge that I have found is once an organization starts to drift towards the bad, 
it seems like there's a good chance they're going to go further down that path and just get worse. Because once an organization establishes that they can take that kind of control over their members and they get a taste for it, it seems to me more likely that they're going to go further in that direction versus kind of regressing to something more ethical. Yeah, sadly, that's been my experience as well. I think from the organization's standpoint, it's often easier to go that way, to just use your power, you know, just to protect yourself against outside. So like, think of if there's an abuse situation that is happening in an organization. It's kind of like how people say HR is there to protect the company, not you. Mm -hmm. So if you go to an organization with a problem and their first instinct is to protect themselves, it's kind of natural, but often bad because they are going to usually do it at the expense of the actual victim in the situation. Mm -hmm. So you have in a jujitsu gym, you might have a smaller version of that, which is an instructor who, when they, they're finding out that there is a, say a student who is being a creep and rather than confront the situation, they want to sidestep it or they want to make it out like the person who's raising the concern is the problem because it's easier to just let things stay how they are than to take a bigger look at the culture of your gym and realize how could this have happened and continued to happen. If it's a one-time thing and you handle it, you know, it's one situation, but if it happens again and again, or if it's coming from the top down, then there is a real problem where you, it's very hard for someone at the bottom to get that situation to change. Right, right. Now, maybe we can tie this into jujitsu just to give some particular examples of what we're talking about. Do you, off the top of your head, have any concepts or ideas of situations in our community where jujitsu has gotten deep into the territory of being a cult? Yeah, let's talk. Let's define the bite model since we keep saying that. Let's define bite model and kind of combine it with the influence continuum. And then we can take some examples from jujitsu and plot them on the the graph from beautiful culty to not culty. So the bite model comes from Steve Hassan's work that had to do with some older work on cults. And it's an acronym for behavior, information, thought, and emotion. The idea being that when you're in a group, it will it'll probably influence those parts of your life, how you act, what information you get, how you think, and how you feel about things. And that alone, like a group influencing those things or controlling those things by itself isn't enough to say it's a cult. It's how does it do those things? And so that's where it gets paired with another idea, which is an influence continuum. So if you want to Google that influence continuum and look at the images, you'll find what I'm talking about, where it's a little chart where on one side on the left, you have things that would be healthier, constructive to exist in, uh, say, a group or its leaders or the individual members. And on the other side, you have destructive and unhealthy things. So rather than looking at a specific behavior and saying, oh, that group's a cult because they believe in aliens, you would say, well, who cares what they believe? Is it healthy or unhealthy for the people? And so what you can look at, if you look at this chart, would be examples of what would you expect out of a leader who is on the good side of this versus the bad side of this. So if you had a good leader, you'd expect things like being psychologically healthy, knowing their own limits, they would empower individuals, they'd be trustworthy and accountable. 
And on the other side, you'd have a leader who's narcissistic or a psycho, like a psychopath. They'd be elitist and uh, grandiose. They'd be power hungry, secretive, deceptive, and they would claim absolute authority. And so you can just look at that and profile a leader. How many of those traits do they have and how far over are they? Because you might have someone who seems to empower individuals sometimes, but then they're also power hungry. So it's not like an all or nothing proposition. So you can just take a leader and then look at them on that chart and figure out, are they controlling how I act, how I think, how I feel and where I get information from, who I talk to, where I, you know, what I read, what videos I watch. And are they doing that in a way that is healthy for me and the group and themselves or unhealthy or destructive? And so what I've seen in a lot of jiu-jitsu gyms is I, instructors who end up shifting over towards the narcissistic, elitist, power-hungry, absolute authority end. And they use that to maintain their control over their little group. And they often are lucky because they have a lot of guys who will fall in line with that and enjoy having that kind of macho, dominant authority figure in their life, but not realize that there's a lot of other problems that can come with that. Yeah, yeah. So something that I like about this model as I mentioned prior, is that it's not all or nothing, right? It acknowledges that there's nuance and that cultiness is on a, it's on a scale and some groups are going to be more culty than others. And like you said, you might be in a situation where maybe the group is doing a lot of things that are actually quite positive, but they do exhibit some negative characteristics. And so it's up to you as the person participating in that group to kind of assess where they sit on the scale. So like you said, in this bite model, on one hand, you can be an organization that is constructive and healthy. And on the other hand, you can be an organization that is much more destructive and unhealthy. And this is an important thing to understand because, you know, people can get very passionate about the organizations they're part of. But that does not necessarily mean it's a cult, right? Like if you are part of, I don't know, a, a political movement and you're really passionate about it, that does not necessarily mean it's a cult. It could be depending on the relationship between the organization and yourself. It depends on whether you're being exploited for the benefit of the founder, or it depends on whether this is something that you legitimately believe in and it's bringing people together. Like a lot of organizations can be very positive because they can bring people together, get them passionate about a cause and align them in a productive manner. But that's very different from an organization that makes people passionate about something and then they relentlessly serve and are exploited by a cult leader. That's a very, very different relationship. And you brought up a great example of how this can parallel into jujitsu because, you know, there are a lot of gyms that on the surface, they might look like any other gym, but instead of being all about empowering people and teaching people to be better versions of themselves, they wind up becoming these weird funnels of loyalty where it becomes all about, you know, binding people to the organization and making them give up things for the benefit of the leader. And I think a lot of the time people don't go into these things, you know, when they create these organizations, 
I don't think there's a, a day where people sit down and they say, you know what, let's let's create a cult here. That's that's our goal is to create a cult. I think a lot of these people come into this with the intent to create something good, but because they lack maturity and integrity as a leader, they wind up creating organizations that are more cult-like. That's been what I've seen too. If you read Steve Hassan's books, he has two main ones on this topic, combating cult mind control and freedom of mind. He gives examples of things like that happening. The one that always stuck out to me was this Zen Buddhist group where the person who led the group sounds like they actually had good intentions at the start. They were one of the first Westerners to be initiated into some level of Zen Buddhism where they could come back and then open a, I don't know what the proper term is, but a school for it. And it just sounds like they got in over their head in terms of not knowing how to lead a group and not knowing how to help people past a certain point in their understanding of the subject. But rather than admit their own limitations, they found it easier to be very emotionally manipulative and authoritarian over people, but do it in a way where it seemed like they were the wise guru, where they were punishing the person for their own good. And it was up to that person to puzzle out why it was actually not abusive. It was actually a lesson they were learning. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of the the story uh, BJ Penn wrote about, or is it Dave Camarillo? One of the two. They were both at Half Gracie's where Half had um, basically just physically assaulted him, just like attacked him, started hitting him and beat him up outside of training and then they i think it was dave camarillo in his book he writes about this how he spent all this time trying to rationalize that going why why did that happen why did my instructor do that to me and he had to come up with a logic like he was trying to show me that i need to be ready to defend myself at any time or he was showing me that something about martial arts and in the book, he says, eventually I realized, no, he just abused me. It wasn't, there wasn't a grand lesson there. It was just, he wanted to beat me up and then make it my problem. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a common thread that anyone who's ever been in a cult or survived an abusive relationship will tell you about, which is that usually the abuser exhibits extremely erratic behavior. I mean, that's one of the ways you can really mess someone up, right? Like if, you know, as a parent... You know, one of the things that I know is that you need to be consistent towards your children, right? It's okay to have punishments for bad behavior, but they need to be fair and logical and justifiable. If you're a lunatic who, you know, some days you come home and you're lovely to your kids, and some days you come home and you yell at and scream at and beat your kids, and there's no rationality behind that, then what you're doing is you're creating a situation where your kid is kind of constantly on edge and doesn't know what to understand, and they're forced into this world of like paranoia and rationalization. Whereas, you know, you can have rules in a household. You can say, you know, if you do this, then you're grounded as long as you exhibit them fairly and logically. And a common thread that I have heard with a lot of cult-like organizations is that it is common to have cult leaders who, you know, they'll be lovely one day and then they will be just absolute monsters the next day for no discernible reason. And that kind of behavior 
it creates a, a very much a subordinate and submissive relationship to the people in the organization. They kind of wind up in a situation where they're constantly walking on eggshells. And like you said, they're trying to rationalize this behavior. And at the end of the day, it, it creates a situation now where you're not really thinking critically about why you're doing things and and what the link is between your behavior and the outcomes, but rather you're totally at the whims of the psychopath. Yes, that reminds me two concepts that can help explain that kind of situation. One, you were saying how giving your kid like rational rules they can understand. Often in these abusive situations, there's a thing set up that gets called a double bind. It's a lose-lose situation. It's where someone makes it so no matter what you do, they can still find fault with you. So you're, you're stuck trying to please them, but they always have a, an ability to still tell you how you failed them if they choose to. Because the other part of that you said is like some days the person's so nice, so welcoming, they connect with everyone, they seem like such a great you know guru or leader or instructor. And the next day you don't know what sets them off, but everyone's you know cowering from them. And there's a, an idea in psychology of intermittent gratification or intermittent reinforcement where when you don't know when the next reward is coming or if there's punishment at random and then a reward. You're more compelled by it. You're more compelled by it than if you got the reward in a rational, expected way. So you can get that's kind of like a principle of gambling or why people get addicted to gambling is the anticipation and the not knowing mm -hmm. How are they going to treat me today? How, you know, is this going to be a good day or a bad day? Are they going to, you know, I'm thinking in jiu-jitsu terms, is the instructor going to be screaming at everyone? Is he going to be criticizing everyone? Is he going to be telling us how we're all screwing it up and he doesn't know why he even teaches us? And Or is he going to be telling cool stories about the good old days and complimenting us and hanging out? And when you don't know which one you're going to get, you kind of have to creep around hoping you're not going to be there on the bad day. <laughs> yeah, this is something that I'm really glad you brought up. And that is that when you're exposed to this kind of intermittent abuse, it creates a compulsion in you to get back to the good days. And like you said, that's the crux of gambling. That's the crux of things like loot boxes and video games. It's a way that you can get bound into a process and compelled to come back for more because you're trying to get back to the good days. And so the side effect of this very bipolar behavior that you get from cult leaders is that you become compelled to try to please them. And this is not something you just see in, you know, extreme examples of cults. I have seen companies that do this where, you know, maybe the leaders of the company are total bipolar you know, psychos and they, some days they come in and they're lovely and other days they come in and they're screaming and they're ranting and everyone is afraid. And then it becomes a, a conversation of how can we please this person and get back to the good days. So that is a very, very common characteristic that can, you will see in cults is, and that's one of the things that's great about the, the bite model and particularly this influence continuum that's part of the bite model is it lists off a lot of the different traits that leaders may have so that you can more easily identify if you're in one of these situations. I mean, I know I have been in situations, not just at jujitsu, but also on the job where I've realized like I am working <laughs> in one of these ecosystems that is exhibiting very negative characteristics on the bite model and on the influence continuum. And 
once you kind of see these things, they become very, very powerful red flags to identify big, big problems if you're in a bad organization or conversely, green flags that could identify that you're in a very healthy place. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's one of those things, once you take away the mystical aspect of the idea of a cult and you just look at a cult as a extreme example of human psychology and usually social psychology, you can pull lessons out of it. And so you can just see how are the power dynamics? How do the leaders use their positions? Is there a secret agenda behind what's happening that you don't know about when you first get into it? Are there, are you, do you actually have informed consent about what you're getting into? And cause you're not going to join something. If you just think it's going to ruin your life and the leader's an asshole, you're going to, probably almost always join because there's something good about it. There's something that is improving your life. And that's what makes the situation so sticky where, I mean, how many people have you known who tell you, man, my instructor's kind of an asshole or this gym is kind of toxic or I don't like the vibe there, but I got nowhere else to train and I have to train jujitsu. So you're willing to put up with these things because it's, you're getting a benefit out of it and it's probably become a part of your lifestyle and your identity. So for there to be someone who has that over you to know they can, you know, if they banish you from the gym, you would lose the thing that you most love. You're willing to put up with a lot of shit you shouldn't put up with. Yeah. And that's a a very common characteristic of cult-like organizations is that they will punish people for leaving. You know, that's very, very common in jujitsu, where if you leave the gym, you get called a creant or, you know, you you are the, the instructor tells all of the other students to never talk to you again or they start slandering you and saying awful things about you. That is an unfortunately common thing in our sport still to this day. And that's one of the things about jujitsu that I really wish we could change. Something that I always encourage people to do, because we get a lot of questions from people basically asking us like, hey, is my gym a cult or is it time to leave my gym? And the answer that I like to give is, would you accept this behavior in any other type of organization, right? If you went to a Domino's pizza and tried to order a pizza and the person behind the desk found out that last week you'd ordered from Pizza Hut and they start screaming in your face and abusing you and calling you names. Like, would you tolerate that behavior? (laughs) You know, that's something that I think sometimes gets lost is when we're really, really engrossed in an organization, we sometimes forget how unusual the behavior can be. And this is something about jujitsu that I, I think a lot of us take for granted. Like a lot of the things that happen in this community, we would never accept in any other walk of life. Like you would never accept that if you go to a Starbucks, that they would demand that you don't ever buy from a competing coffee brand, right? Like we'd never accept that. But yet even to this day, it persists that some gyms won't let you cross train elsewhere, right? We would never accept the idea of like a gym enforcer in anything else. Can you imagine if you know, you're, you're going to work and, you know, you show up to work one day and some guy at the office just beats the shit out of you. <laughs> and it, it turns out that that happened because, you know, you were, maybe you were snarky the other day and someone wanted to teach you a lesson. So they hooked you up with a gym enforcer and he just abused you. Like you would never accept that. But for some reason in jujitsu, this is a common thing. And people joke about it. About, oh, he's the gym enforcer, you know, and the, that's such a stupid thing. But the idea that you need to have someone in your gym whose job is to physically punish and abuse paying customers. It's fucking toxic. But 
these kinds of things persist in jujitsu. And I think sometimes because this is a martial art, we give it a free pass and we don't look at it through the same critical lens that we would other things because we think like, oh, it's a martial art. It's expected there. That's something I've given a lot of thought to. I know you've made that analogy in other episodes I've listened to where you'll say, you know, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't accept it if a gold's gym told you that if you ever left, you would be betraying them. But like, I think for most people that the, the jiu-jitsu takes a very special position in their life and they have a very special relationship to it because it can be, I think, much more transformative than if you just went to a Zumba class. Mm-hmm. So here's something you can tell me your thoughts on. I've been trying to figure this out is I do view the, the relationship that a jiu-jitsu instructor has to their students as more meaningful than many other similar situations because you're in a student-teacher relationship where you're not necessarily in that with a fitness class. And there's a lot of potential there for good because I you hear stories of instructors who have really helped people through hard times or been there for them beyond what you would really expect of an instructor in any other sport or any other field. So there's a lot of good that can be done through those relationships. But with that becomes comes a kind of a blurring of boundaries where it could also go the other way, where now you have people who, because their instructor seems wise in the thing that they most care about, jiu-jitsu, want to also let that instructor have a bigger say over how they think about life in general or the way they treat women or their marriage or and so there's like a a weird area where i definitely know people who have had very positive good relationships with their instructors that were even beyond just their jiu-jitsu instruction but it's do we need to expect that of all jiu-jitsu instructors or is that just that instructor happened to be a good person and they were able to use their relationship beyond just the instructor relationship. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I give the Gold's Gym example a lot, but and what I'm trying to do is draw a parallel between jiu-jitsu and the, the real world. But you're right that one of the things about jiu-jitsu is it does have like a team dynamic and an instructor-student dynamic. And you are likely to, you know, develop a pretty close bond with your instructor over the years. Additionally, jiu-jitsu does have this life-changing property for a lot of people who take it. But I worry sometimes that, like you mentioned, this leads to us giving a bit of a halo effect to our instructor, where, like you said, you know, we know they're they're good at jiu-jitsu, and so we kind of maybe assume that they must be equally good at other things. Like, maybe that means they're good at teaching jiu-jitsu, too. Well, that's not always the case, right? Just because you're good at doing jiu-jitsu does not mean you're good at teaching it, or, you know, maybe... Maybe we also think, well, maybe that means that they're, they have a lot of really, really informed political information. Well, that's not necessarily <laughs> the case, right? I mean, I really don't need to get my politics from a gym owner. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, you know, there's people who specialize in this stuff. There's much better sources of information. That's one of the examples of things where, you know, I, I think that maybe instructors, because they live now in this world where they have this this master-student dynamic and people come to them as the font of wisdom, they 
kind of get into this habit of dispensing wisdom and it can be a an attractive habit to build for yourself and you can wind up in a situation where as an instructor you're kind of pontificating on things that you have no business pontificating about and moreover that because of this halo effect your students are more inclined to listen to you than they should be i mean what would you do if you know you you hired a lawyer because you needed to get some paperwork drafted up and they started going on and on and on about like what you should do to renovate your home right like i mean yeah i might listen to them but at the end of the day like that's not why i came here and that's not your area of expertise right you know so for some reason and i think again it comes down to that master student dynamic that we see in the martial arts where people are more inclined to listen to their instructor in areas where they shouldn't. And I also think too, that there is a degree of mysticism that is ingrained with the martial arts, right? Even jujitsu, which we like to think of as a relatively scientific martial art by comparison. I mean, we still have that degree of mysticism and no matter how much we put it aside, like if the instructor is physically kicking your ass, there's going to be a bit of a master student dynamic there, even if you don't call yourself master. Additionally, you know, people get into this because we, you know, at least my generation, we learned about martial arts from watching like Hollywood movies where, you know, you got the wise master who lives on the hill and you go up there for knowledge. There's this expectation that the martial arts master is the guru and people, whether they want to or not, have a tendency to fall into those roles. And I think you see this in a lot of other industries where there's a degree of this mysticism behind them as well. Like a lot of a lot of wellness industries have similar problems, right? And and I would argue that jujitsu falls into that wellness bucket, maybe more so than they do a sport bucket. You know, you see this kind of problem with yoga instructors. You see this problem with um, holistic medicine providers where they drift way outside of their lanes in terms of areas of expertise all the time. And so I think there's something about that you know, about practices that involve that degree of mysticism, where it becomes very easy for the instructor to become a cult leader. Yeah, I think that you made a very good point there about jujitsu being closer to the wellness industry than to athletics, because that's, I think, the role that it plays for a lot of people is it's the way, it's not just the way someone gets their workout, it's also the way that they get their stress out. It's the way that they socialize it's the identity that they adopt so that every all their Facebook posts are about jujitsu. All of their Instagram posts are going to be about jujitsu. I think we've all had that experience. If we're if you're listening to this podcast, you probably had this experience. All you can think about is jujitsu for a while. I remember when I first mm-hmm. started, you know, in the shower, laying down to go to bed at night, sitting on the toilet, dreaming. You would all your mind was full of was jujitsu thoughts, yeah. and so when something becomes that important to you, it can also become a lever against you raising any concerns that could get it taken away from you. Or that the other part of it is it becomes your social life. And then people in groups very quickly fall into certain social dynamics. So then we start getting the problems of cliques and bullying, even amongst adults. And it doesn't have to be, you know, someone like stuffs you in a locker type bullying that you would have in (laughs) with kids, but more the way got people gossip, the way that you can feel that you're in or out with the the cool people, the way in which, you know, there's a, a circle of people around the instructor that you need to be on the good side of, or you're not going to get the extra attention you might want. You might not get the good roles. You might just get that feeling that you're not really a part of the group and, 
as a social animal, humans really hate that feeling of mm-hmm. not really being included in the true group. Yeah, yeah. And you brought up a great point, which is that jujitsu does have this life changing property for a lot of people. And that's something that's important to understand when you're dealing with organizations that fall onto the negative side of the bite model, which is people are probably staying in those organizations for some reason, like they're getting some value out of it, most likely. It's not that they're getting nothing out of it. There is a hook that is compelling them to stay. And there is a hook that they're using to justify all of the bad behavior. And in the case of jujitsu, it is this life-changing thing about how it can, you know, it for most of us, you know, we were a lot fitter when we go into jujitsu than we were before. You know, we have a lot more confidence because we learn to defend ourselves. We make a lot more friends. And, and very soon, I would say that for most of us, jujitsu becomes our third place. It becomes the place where we socialize and we meet new people. And I think that that is one of the challenges if you get embroiled in one of these organizations that's on the the negative side of the bite model, that's more cult-like, is that it's easy to justify to yourself to say, oh, but look at all the value I get out of being part of this. I could never leave. Yeah, that's the big big problem with it. So if you want to see another very parallel example of this or listen to one, there's the Netflix documentary about Bikram Yoga, and there's also the ESPN podcast series about it which I feel like everyone who does jiu-jitsu should listen to that because you could see that whole story happening in a jiu-jitsu organization of someone bringing a thing to people that really changes their lives, using their position to gain followers and then using that to exploit their followers. And the big part of that at the, at the end of the story, you know, I'm sorry to spoil it, but is the people who, will justify all of the abuses because their personal experience was good and that they never saw anything directly. And so they're willing to disregard all the people coming forward. They're willing to disregard the all the evidence against the abuser because they want to just say, oh, I never had that experience. I can only speak about what's happened to me, which has a, enough truth to it that you can't. it's hard to argue against. But they have to really be willfully ignorant of a lot of other things because they want to continue having the benefits without having to think too hard about what they're also endorsing or allowing. Yeah, the way that I would parallel that is, you know, in general, when you attack someone, you are forcing a defensive reaction out of them. Like as an example, if you're ever trying to give someone feedback, it's a real challenge because if you get them on the defensive, they're not going to listen to anything you have to say. In fact, they might go into the opposite direction, right? So there's a whole science to how you can gently give someone useful feedback without getting their hackles up. (laughs) Yeah, And I think the way you see here in cult-like organizations is similar where if they find out that, you know, there are allegations of awful behavior happening in the gym they might view that as an attack on on the organism, which is the cult, which they're a part of. So they get defensive, right? Like if you love your gym, if it is the center of your social circle and you start hearing awful things about it, your initial reaction may be to be, to defend the organism and to defend it very aggressively. And we know that one of the things about cults is often they respond very aggressively to accusations about wrongdoing. Yes. And the instinct of the people in it 
is so to defend it is so strong, I think, because at that point, it's, it feels like a personal attack. Your identity is tied to this group. Mm-hmm. You've invested so much of your time, maybe money, effort, belief, hope, all these emotions are invested in it. So when someone is perceived as attacking it, it you don't just weigh the options impartially because you can't. You feel it personally. I mean, not always. Some people do, but it's very hard to. It's very hard to not feel personally attacked when the group you're a part of seems under attack. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of distance yourself mentally, at least, and try to, and this is very hard because we're all humans and this is kind of hard (laughs) wired into our brains. You have to try to get rid of some of your bias and look at the situation. That's very hard to do because the nature of bias is usually that it's unconscious. So how would you know or not know if you were using it? Yeah, that's why I love the the parallels of asking yourself, would I tolerate this in a different type of organization? Because it lets you step back and objectively evaluate whether this behavior is normal. Or similarly, you could say, you know, if my child were in this kind of situation, would I think that that is normal and acceptable, right? The goal is to step into a third person and look at yourself objectively and ask yourself, is this the kind of behavior that I would accept? Because to your point, a lot of people don't go into cults thinking like, I'm going to go join a cult today. This is going to be awesome. Like what winds up happening is usually, you know, like boiling a frog. Sometimes they get deeper and deeper and deeper into it to the point where they've normalized all of the weirdness and they don't even see it anymore. For me, I mean, when I joined a jujitsu gym, I have told a story on the podcast before I joined my first gym not knowing really anything about jujitsu. I just Googled, you know, for jujitsu and went, took the top hit and assumed that because they were popular, they must be the best. And from day one, I didn't like the gym, but I was stubborn. So I stuck through with it. And, you know, after a while, it started becoming a really awful place to go to. And then at one point, the head instructor basically banished one of his one of his higher up teachers for disloyalty this instructor who was banished was a friend of mine. And so I was told not to help that person in their new gym. And like, basically, you know, standard cult behavior, like you can't associate with this disloyal person. And that for me was the wake up call, because that's when I realized like, whoa, this thing has gotten way beyond what I as a grown ass man am willing to tolerate. And that's when I made the decision to leave. But even then it was shockingly hard because I loved jujitsu and I put a significant amount of time into it. And I met a lot of friends there and I didn't want to go through the awkwardness of extracting myself from this organization, especially seeing how they treated other people who left the organization. But knowing what I know now, these are all of the hallmarks of a cult. And this stuff is sadly very common in jujitsu because for for whatever reason, because I think in a lot of ways, jujitsu is a very backwater sport. It just flies under the radar and kind of gets a pass on this stuff. But I think it's way more prevalent than most of us would like to admit. Yeah. In your story there, I have the influence continuum in front of me. In your story there, it seems like it checks some of these boxes of you were expected to be obedient, to respect absolute authority. There's no legitimate reason to leave and the authoritarian structure of the organization. So it's my way or the highway. Anyone who leaves is dead to us. They're traitors. Loyalty means doing what I say, the way I say it. And there's no there's no one above that person you can go to to dispute this. So it's it's baked into any small group where there's one leader 
where do you go if there's a problem other than I don't know, the police, you know, but like, where do you go if there's a thing that doesn't rise to that level, but you think, well, that's not right. You're, you're treating, you know, like you said, the guy leaves the gym and then your instructor is telling everyone else how they're supposed to feel about that guy, how they're supposed to think about that guy, how they're not supposed to get any communicate with that guy, not supposed to support him. There's like a small little element I understand of like, a business to stay in business and that's another competitor and whatever. But I've seen that same justification when there's like two gyms within an hour of each other who don't really compete at all. Mm-hmm. And then someone switches gyms because they actually live closer to the, the one that's an hour away. And then everyone's supposed to hate that person. Now I've been in those situations where we were expected to cut them out, shit, talk them in class, just crap all over them. When I'm going, whatever, they just want to do jujitsu at the new gym that opened near their house because so they don't have to drive an hour each way every day. And now I'm supposed to hate them because of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine going to a job, you know, you quit the job and then a week later you find out this company is putting up press releases about what an awful person you are, right? Like you would get sued or they would get sued if that happened. But in jujitsu, this still remains common. And I, I think that this is one of the things we got to change and clean up if we want to start, if we really want this to become a legitimate sport. I mean, people are always saying things like, oh, well, you know, we need to get into the Olympics and yada, yada, yada. But look, if if we ever want the sport to actually become a bigger deal than it is, then it has to become an actual sport and not this like athletic wellness endeavor, which is I, I would consider jujitsu to be more in the lines of wellness than it is an actual sport. I mean, you look at the way that our sport is structured, right? And the the organization, the IBJJF that governs a lot of the rules behind what we do, right? It, it in itself does a lot of things to try to centralize power and take control for their own profit. And really, if we want the sport to succeed, we need more objectivity in terms of who runs it. We need to clean up the behavior of the people in it. We need to improve the teaching methods. Right now, it feels like jujitsu does have a lot in common with yoga. Yeah, it's very wild west. (laughs) I don't share any goal. Like, I don't know how strongly you feel. I don't really care if jujitsu ever ends up in the Olympics. The Olympic sports are super corrupt, too. And there's a whole nother set of problems there because now you're entering into politics and money. But the jujitsu does have the issue of almost anyone can open a school. I mean, there's, you know, internal like, you know, rooting out of fake black belts that goes on, but plenty of crappy black belts or assholes can still open a gym and get Mm -hmm. students and be presumed to be authorities. And there isn't any sort of good way in which there, in an organizational way that we can enforce any codes of conduct or ethics rules or the things that, that do come if you have a sport like an Olympic sport where, you know, coaches can't date students like that's just a rule. Whereas in jujitsu, that's so common. It's like I was being controversial when I wrote a post saying instructors shouldn't date students. And then you get all these people going, well, what about these people? They got together through jujitsu and all. And I understand there's lots of people who have met through jujitsu and were instructors who got married and uh, had good relationships. But there are so many more stories where it didn't go that well. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we would reduce the harm a lot more by having a way to make that a real rule. Just instructors don't have sexual relationships with students. Like that isn't that 
is so uncontroversial in like every other sport. But if I say that about jujitsu, people get mad at me. Well, every other career path as well, right? I mean, I remember when I was early on my in my career, I discovered, and I don't even want to say it, but there was like a nasty Brazilian slur that they use to basically slander and insult women who get into these relationships. Of course, they never make fun mm-hmm. of the man, you know, presumably the male instructor who who is involved in the relationship as well, but there is like a nasty slur for describing the woman in these relationships. And it's it's absolutely gross. Like it makes me ashamed to be involved in this sport because as a black belt, I am an ambassador of the sport. I mean, I think that when you get to black belt, really the main thing that differentiates black belt from the other belts is that you are now an ambassador of the sport. You represent the sport. And so by being a representative of the sport, all of this toxic crap reflects negatively on me and I Mm -hmm. won't stand for it. Like that's one of the things that I really think we need to clean up. And yeah, I agree with you in any other organization, like, you know, it, it is never okay in any other organization for a superior to have a sexual relationship with one of the people they're responsible for. Like it's absolutely insane that in jujitsu, that is just a thing that we think is normal. And it is ridiculous that in a lot of gyms, you have instructors who basically, you know, it's not even one woman. And let's be honest, it's usually the man exploiting the woman in this relationship. But it's usually not a situation where it's an instructor doing this to one of their students. Usually they're doing it to many of their students and it is repeat behavior. Yeah, that's been what I've seen and what I've heard from a lot of other people is the things that lead to problems. Often men in positions of power with access to sex and money and more power or attention. And the jiu-jitsu instructor gets kind of thrust into that position, <laughs> thrust, sorry, because of the nature of just how a jiu-jitsu gym is. They get a bunch of devotees, they get to order around, they make their livelihood from it, and they can use their position over any women who join to try to push their relationship in ways you wouldn't get if they were in any other situation. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like in, there's some inherent problems that we have to be aware of as instructors if we're going to be in those positions, but also more so because there's more of us as students in those schools or in those situations. Yeah. And I would also advise, I mean, we have to bear in mind that jujitsu remains a very male dominated sport. If we really want jujitsu to take off, I mean, if you're an instructor and you're interested in growing your business, think of how much more money you would make if you could bring into your gym the same number of women as you have men. I mean, you'd almost double your students if you could do that. We're leaving a lot of money on the table by treating women this way. We're leaving a lot of money on the table if you need a selfish motivation by creating an environment that is toxic to women. Because, you know, it it takes a lot for a woman to go into a sport like jujitsu. And that's unfortunate because, you know, I don't see any reason why women couldn't benefit and don't benefit from jujitsu in the same manner as men, but it is still very male dominated. And we've got to strike down a lot of these behaviors that alienate and shut out women. And, you know, probably a lot of the, you know, there's the possibility that there could be some incredible world-class grapplers that are coming in, but they're getting driven off before they even get the first stripe on their white belt, because this kind of behavior is a huge put off. And I totally understand that. Yeah. Most, if not all women I've spoken to who have, have gotten, even just a little bit in jujitsu, like a few stripes on their belt is all it takes. But any further than that, have all kinds of stories of the the weird stuff they've had to put up with. 
And I get that there's one thing. There's one thing of like an individual student being a weirdo and saying something inappropriate or touching somebody in a kind of a weirdo way during rolling or, you know, the stupid comments they make about being, oh, when's the last time? When's the next time I can between your legs? Like that kind of stupid stuff. But it's when the instructor doesn't do anything about it if it's brought to their attention or if they if they never notice it. So, you know, it's does the school have a culture that allows that or is going to weed that out? And does the school have a, a leader who is willing to do it? To go back to the story I said where what got me into looking into a lot of this stuff was someone reaching out to me for help. Their story was a wild one because they were this girl who was a white belt at a gym and she messaged me because I had like a, I had this little form on my website. This is ask a black belt a question. And most people would just be asking me technique questions. How do I escape half guard? And then one day I get this message that's like, oh, hey, I'm having, having a situation. There's a guy at my gym and the way they explained it was he's stalking me. He's making inappropriate comments in class. He found out where I live by lying to other people about why he needed my phone number, my address. And if I don't give him attention during class or respond to him after class, he threatens to kill himself. Is that weird? I've talked to my instructor about it, but they didn't want to do anything. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is so horrible. And Call the police. <laughs> I mean, That's what I told her. I was like, do you have somewhere safe to stay? Do you, can you go somewhere else? Can you call the police? He knows where you live. He's threatened violence. And they were like, oh, no, it's not a big deal. My instructor said he's like, you know, kind of, you know, the guys have a rough time. And, you know, he comes to jujitsu because it's good for him. And the instructor really didn't want to get involved. Mm -hmm. And I told her, like, your instructor needs to get involved. This isn't a situation where he can be loose about it. I understand maybe if this person has a mental health issue that they're trying to be somewhat forgiving and not jump to conclusions or something like that. But it, the more they explained the situation to me, the more I learned how long he'd been going on, the worse it sounded. And I kind of admitted, I, this is kind of beyond my depth. I thought people were going to message me like, how do I do an Americana? So I put them in touch with Valerie Worthington. And that's the experience I had that prompted me to talk to women and to write about how do we confront this problem in jiu-jitsu. I messaged that person years later. They had moved away. They had joined a new gym, and they were a higher – I think they got a purple belt by then. And I wanted to know what had happened because I said, okay, if this is the way your gym is treating you, I would leave that gym. That gym sounds like it doesn't have good leadership. And maybe you feel like this is just one guy, and you don't want to judge them all for it. But I would get out of there. Yeah. So years later, they told me that it went further, that when another person started treating them like that and they complained to the instructor, the instructor blamed them, took them into the office alone and yelled at them and made them feel unsafe because they were they were making it out to be her problem for complaining. And the instructor just didn't want to have to have a hard conversation with the guys he was buddies with man yeah and that that in itself is unfortunately very common cult behavior too right is to to victim blame yes so there's just a lot of people who are being put into positions of leadership as jutes instructors who don't have the leadership credentials or haven't been trained in them so 
the fix for that, I don't know. This is a problem everywhere in the world. Uh, hopefully a talk that we're giving right now helps members of a group like that at least know how to look for the warning signs. There's a book that I've been reading that I think has a lot of useful information. And I also plugged this when I was talking on Stefan's podcast. And it's called Intelligent Disobedience, where it proposes an idea of how do you be a member of a group that holds the group and its leaders responsible, even though you don't seem to have a lot of power because you're just one of many. But that's kind of the point. You're one of many. And there's ways in which you can challenge leadership, try to get accountability out of a group that doesn't seem to want any. And the reason behind the name is that there's a need to know when you shouldn't go along with what you were being told to do, or you shouldn't be in agreement with your group, even though that might be the easier thing to do. But it can be so hard to overcome that peer pressure and to be the one who sticks out like a sore thumb when everyone else is either willing to ignore it or wants you to shut up about it. Yeah, that's that's a great recommendation. Do you know who the author is of that book? I'm sorry, I don't remember their name, but uh, I can definitely give it to you for the show notes. It looks like the name is Ira Chalef, Chalef maybe. Probably mm -hmm. hard to make that clear over the audio here. I-R-A is the first name, C-H-A-L-E-F-F -F is the second. But if you search for intelligent disobedience, you should be able to find it. I see that it's here on Audible, so I'm going to pick it up right now. Great. Yeah, I've been reading through that. That comes very highly recommended to me from different people in the cult world because, you know, ratio-wise, there's many more cult members than there are cult leaders. So it can be interesting to see all the ways in which a cult leader acts because then you know, like, the warning signs. But really, most of us aren't going to be that person. We're not going to be the leader of a group. <laughs> We're going to be a member of a group. So it's knowing how do we – how do we – get some justice or how do we steer a group towards being healthy if there are moments where it could go either way or where it's unclear that your leadership knows what to do. Mm -hmm. Well, awesome, Matt. That was super helpful. Any closing thoughts, any advice for people who find themselves stuck in a destructive organization? The thing I've been thinking about is how a lot of people get into jiu-jitsu because they want to know how to defend themselves. I think self-defense is the main reason people get into any martial art. But then the emphasis becomes on the combat of it, the hand-to-hand -hand combat of it. And really, I think you're not doing yourself a favor if you don't realize that so much more of your life is that threat from non-physical abuse. So that's being exploited for your trust being exploited. Maybe that's for money. Maybe that's just for loyalty. There's an idea when you look at narcissistic leaders that often what they want is just what gets called a narcissistic supply. They want people who just give them attention, give them praise, give them their feeling of superiority. And through that, they find ways to that's going to be their motivation for finding ways to kind of put people under their thumb. And so if you are concerned about self-defense and you don't look into the psychology of abuse, exploitation, cults, cons, all these things that don't involve violence, 
then you're only doing part of the job. You're doing the more fun part of training martial arts, but you can be neglecting the things that will probably actually happen to you. You know, you're, you're going to a jiu-jitsu gym to improve yourself, so you're not expecting there might be a toxic relationship that comes from that. That could be between you and your instructor, you and the whole group, you and other people in the group. And so we're going to have many more situations in our life that are like that than getting mugged or being in a fist fight or a bar fight or whatever stupid thing you might get into. So I would say that if you want to really understand defending yourself, you shouldn't just think it's about knowing some techniques on the mat. You really need to understand the techniques of exploitation that exist and then the things you can do to protect yourself. Wonderful insight. Thank you so much for that. Matt, if someone wants to ask you more questions on the topic, or if they just want to ask you how to do that Americana, how do they contact you? <laughs> they can go to asopian.com, A-E-S-O-P-I-A-N.com. Uh, there's a contact form there. You can probably type asopian. There, I switched back. I reverted my pronunciation. <laughs> You can type in that into Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. You'll probably find me. I'm always around. After I did my talk with Stefan, I got some people messaging me about some of the sports science games for drills and all that. So I'm happy to talk to people about jujitsu fun stuff or all this abuse <laughs> cult <laughs> heavier topics. Whatever one you want to talk about, I'm happy to uh, talk about either one. You know, I get a lot of emails on both of the topics, but no one has yet sent me an email on both things at the same time. Like, hey, Steve, can you help me finish an arm bar and escape a cult? Like, I haven't got one of those <laughs> yet. Usually it's one or the other. <laughs> Just same here. Don't seem to be, they don't seem to be mixed up on the same time. Awesome. Well, I mean, I think everyone who listens knows how to get in contact with us, but just in case, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where there's a contact form as well as a database of all of the concepts we talk about here on the show. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store to pick up gi patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join to get on the our mailing list. We send out an email to thousands of grapplers every week. And of course, you can check us out on Facebook and on Instagram. And last but not least, uh, if you want to help support the show and get access to more premium stuff, you can support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash models. That's the single best thing you can do if you want to help support the show and be a member of what we do here. It really does make a difference, and we do try to make it worth everyone's while. We've got a lot of premium strategy content on there. We'll also review your rolling footage and provide detailed narrative critique using the concepts that we talk about on the show, and you get access to our Discord, which is pretty cool. So if you want to chat with us, that's one way to do that as well. Get on our Patreon and then you'll, you can set up our Discord and get on there and then you can ask us whatever questions you want. Matt, thanks again for coming by. Really appreciate it, man. You bet. Anytime. Awesome. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>